I am writing with my burnt hand about the nature of fire. In 1971, Austrian poet Ingeborg Bachmann penned Melina, her first and only novel. Here, subjectivity is slippery, immured in the depths of an irrepressible trauma, a language game. Years later, and German Werner Schroeter would adapt this tricksy masterpiece for the screen, also called Melina. Here too, subjectivity is under the hammer and identity, where the sense of self is constantly flickering, guttering, and threatening to burst into flames, or go out. A collapsing house, the agonies of the Nazi past, patriarchal power games. How can you free yourself from all of that and still retain your eye? That fire would eventually consume Bachmann herself, who died after a lit cigarette was dropped and ran amok in her house. This was 1973, just two years after she finished the novel. Oof. This is MoveTube, a podcast about films. And I've probably just heaped a lot of negativity on you, which is exactly what you need right now. But joining us in this struggle session as lecturer, writer, artist, Matthew Turner, who knows something about Bachman's world. Matthew, welcome to the Tube. Hello. I mean, let's talk first about Bachman, I think, because you, Matthew, you've written, you claimed just before we started recording that you don't remember writing the, <laughs> you don't remember writing the essay, uh, the article in Freeze, but you talk about Ingeborg Bachman. Can you give us, seeing as this is an adaptation, this is Werner Schroeder's adaptation of Bachman's novel, tell, tell us about, tell us about Melina, the book, and tell us a little bit about Ingeborg Bachman. Yeah, so about her, as you rightly said, she uh, was primarily a, a poet at the beginning of her career, um, but then also quite a prolific essayist, uh, gave lots of lectures on the kind of nature of, of literature and on, on poetry. Um, and then the, the incident that you described um, with the flame and the fire um, was when she was living in Rome. Um, and... Yeah, that's her kind of background, really. She's one of these characters that's been kind of maligned a little bit. Um, so she was uh, mistress to Paul Salam and uh, mm. he kind of... I didn't know that. Saw, uh, know that. Yeah, he um, kind of overshadowed her a little bit, um, even though, for, for my taste, I think she's the better writer. I, I, I concur, actually. Um, interesting, he died um, in water. The film is such a good adaptation of the novel, I think. When we're talking about the film and the novel, we can kind of talk about them simultaneously. And obviously, it's a film podcast, whatever. Um, right, I know, Ralph, you've literally just finished watching it, I think. Yeah, so I feel like my role in this discussion is kind of um, like a, a dog that's just been uh, rolling around in mud. Uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to review the mud. Um, that's sticking to your fur. Yeah, I haven't quite shaken it off yet. I mean, cinematically, it has certain qualities that very much excite me. There are certain cuts that are very sensual. There's a cut between someone kissing some, um, someone kissing the main character's um, hand. A man kisses the main character's hand, and then it cuts to him kissing her breasts in a sort of in a, in a complete motion almost, um, which reminded me a bit of Eight and a Half. I remember when we reviewed that, we picked out these particular cuts that were just absolutely the essence of cinema in a way and I kind of love that I love that it, I love that it right off the bat it has this immense dreamlike 
quality and when i say dreamlike quality i mean that like moments that do not belong to the assumed baseline reality are given kind of equal parity and there's a sort of disruption throughout every moment i think you know that's quite a rare thing in cinema even though cinema is kind of the the medium of dreams it's not often it's yeah it's very much not not linear in that sense is it we're getting these jumps from kind of states which some of which seem to exist in the real space of reality some of which exist in dreams and there's not a clear delineation between them I mean, Raoul Ruiz has that quality. But in a way, also, like, yeah, I want yeah. to say, like, I find that sort of form very difficult to pay close attention to. It might just be because the election in America recently, and I've been doing lots of, you know, video work for that, so my brain has been kind of split off. And I watched this film in about three parts. You know, I feel I feel like I haven't given it my my full attention and yet it was a weird scenario it was a weird situation watching it and and a bit like india song in a way actually watching it and loving it but also like kind of I yeah mean, i loved i like this more than india song but like like respecting what was going on but not being drawn in it's an interesting sense because uh, is elizabeth elizabeth Huppert, sorry isabel Huppert plays the unnamed uh central character um and she is it's a very interesting depiction of female madness i think and women aren't often allowed to be mad in films and in power as well what are you talking about they're always mad in films no no but not they're hysterical (laughs) and she's not hysterical she plays quite a in some senses she's a writer she's you know she which is often again not a role that's given to women i think you know you kind of got like monica viti um in red desert right which and she does play this kind of almost frantic kind of uh, it's a very uh, I think quite misogynistic re- like representation of female madness whereas here it it's uh, that almost feels irrelevant even though everything in this film is kind of about gender and sex um, yeah because she's a famous patriarchy. writer so she's doing like the Woody Allen thing of like playing someone mm. who's famous for being creative and having yeah. creative struggles and being a, being mm. a dick the classic depiction of uh, a female in a in a film being mad it's a kind of othering of that person mm. um as in they're not relevant anymore and I, I think that kind of comes through in the film that there's all these kind of quite masculine figures around her and then like you say she's got her adoring fans that don't understand that she has those feelings and they're making it worse um whereas in the novel you get a sense of a person that um doesn't go mad through kind of external factors but um, it might sound kind of cliche, but goes mad from knowing too much and understanding yes. too much of what's going on around her. Yeah, it's almost like a sensory sensory overload in the novel because she's constantly, there's all these doubling, the sentences kind of double back on themselves, question themselves, and it's like this um, Wittgensteinian... It, well, when, when people say they saw Wittgenstein lecture, he was often... Um, uh, he would either be completely silent or would be almost quite a bad speaker because it, he was trying to say everything at once which is an impossible thing and to reduce it to the correct proposition right so there's a sense in a novel that you know there's always crossing backs doublings there are phone calls that happen which are lots of kind of uh like ships in the night these kind of uh sentences that half finish and half end there's like conversations that aren't really happening but they're trying to have them so there's like a failure of language and a failure of conversation and i mean in the film, it kind of does that quite well, do you think? Like, the, the, the sense of these, like, the sense that it's just a language is there, and obviously a film can't really depict language happening, but do you think it does a good job of showing that the language is a big, important part of this madness? Yeah, I, th- I think so, because the, the kind of the environments that they're in are never kind of 
um, they don't appear from nowhere, even though even though they they kind of do in these kind of dream sequences. Um, but they're always a manifestation of the language that's come before it. Mm. Um, and it, it's quite interesting to note as well that um, I think most of the dialogue in the film and the script is completely different to the book. There's lots of different allusions and things that um, that aren't there. But one of the one of the key lines that that is from the novel is when she's uh, staying at the, the hunting ranch. I think it's kind of halfway through. Yep. And she talks about how language has started to. Um, she sees, she sees broken sentences in lamplight, and then she sees yes. the sentences hanging from a washing line, and there's words. And that's one of the key kind of um, breakage moments in the novel. And I think it also is in the in the film as well. She kind of yep. she tries to escape, and obviously it doesn't doesn't work because she returns back to her old life, kind of a yeah. Does she even last the night? I don't know. I think she goes back. I don't. I think she tries to, and she sits up at night. She she attempts to have this dinner, um, and it's a very threatening, again, masculine environment because it's this uh, deeply kind of Bavarian energy um, hunting lodge with just the walls are covered in uh, the heads of hunted animals. Um, yeah, and it's this extremely threatening space, and she's obviously come to this lake for a respite from you know her work and it kind of that tears her asunder and she flees back because obviously the the center of the film is uh it's a it's a relationship in a way it's a kind i mean it would be very reductive to call it a love story it kind of is and isn't uh simultaneously um a love triangle between three characters between uh the unnamed woman um between hooper and between a character called ivan and a character called Malina, um, which is surprisingly when I, before I knew anything about this film, I assumed Malina was a woman's name and that that name referred to um, Huppert's character. And obviously I think that's an intentional slippage, right? That she is kind of being simultaneously identified with the masculine. There's like these slippages of masculine and feminine. I was saying it, it's not necessarily an erotic film. It's not a, uh, the, it's not even necessarily a romantic relationship. It's it seems to all be pared down to just communication. Ivan and the ability for characters to meet each other's needs. So Ivan is quite distant um, in the film. It's a very sudden love affair, but she she's kind of overbearing. He's distant. Um, she is sometimes distant, and then he's kind of fragmented. We, the he has a life of his overbearingness depicted. Sorry to interrupt. Mm. Was just no, no, like, go on. Was like insane, and it really reminded me of like a certain side. I mean, I I don't want to go sort of locker room here, but like a certain <laughs> side of like heterosexuality that that, uh, that men see from like of women mm. that isn't really depicted very much, like. It, like women are often in fiction d- displayed as like kind of t- sort of really sub and really like really passive like all like the neediness yeah. is kind of like conflated yeah. with just like a lack of power whereas i feel mm. like the character played here is like both needy and powerful so there's a bit where they're in the mm. car and she she sort of leans towards him in a slightly seductive way and like places her body on him and then mm. she suddenly kind of explodes and shakes him about and says, like, why won't you, like, agree that we phone every day? Mm. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a um, banal thing, isn't it? You know, and then he's a, just like, look, dude, just chill out, chill out, chill out. You know, yeah. Like, it's, but it's right. I, she I, has I will, these moments. I will she, speak to you on the phone. 
But like, yeah, she draws that is close so to fucking him. like that. I've seen that happen mm. so many times. It's like a dynamic, yeah. and it's something about madness. It's something about like, I guess gender roles. Like you know, like you know, like like <laughs> before I say stuff that sounds mad like i think everyone is mad <laughs> you know like i think men are mad but men's madness is like more kind of it's more subdued and, and more conventional and therefore more like mm. less visible and more cruel um whereas like women are, are able to access this kind of real um this, this hysteria, explosivity right? hysterical men hysterical, really hysterical. yeah um, and she cool. yeah go on matthew sorry um, yeah, I, I think that kind of hysterical nature and this kind of pervasive gaze is is captured uh, cinematically as well. Um, so at the beginning of um, what you said there, you mentioned Ivan. And I think this, this film is all about, they're kind of all about polar opposites. Mm. It's kind of very kind of um, programmed in a way. Um, there's like binary opposit oppositions between people. So you've got Ivan, who is very distant. And then on the other hand, you've got this kind of strange character, Melina, who on the on the one hand is very different um, and is very distant. Um, but then on the other, like really pervasive as well. And it, it seems to be everywhere all at once. You know, he just appeared mm. around the He's corner. He's always Panopticon, isn't he? Because yeah. there's a really good, there's a really good characteristic scene from this film, which is um, lighting a cigarette from a stove and she's coming very close to the flames you know it's quite unsettling to watch because she it seems at any moment her hair will burst into fire um and she's almost got this drunken there's a, a certain gait to her her bodily performance in this film which is this very drunken tipsy movement through the rooms um and then suddenly melina bursts out bursts through into the room and into the into the scene and kind of grabs her violently by the hair and pulls her away from the stove and then throws her away and then she wanders away then sits down normally casually and lights a cigarette and it's this this explosion of intense physicality that then subdues again and it's a really interesting representation of the, yeah like you said he's everywhere he's able to save her um, but then she kind of doesn't really want she doesn't even acknowledge the act of saving um, it's not talked about and it's that's what we're talking about with these power dynamics because obviously Melina can provide something she wants which is this almost patriarchal um, this rock almost and she kind of is drawn towards it and also revolted by it um, and he increasingly plays the role what Ivan kind of fades in this film he disappears so he's obviously rejects uh, her because she's too too much I suppose is the implication um, and then Melina kind of comes into the foreground in the in the latter half of the film, but not necessarily. He sometimes he's directly involved, but often he's just watching her. Yeah, and I I think that theme of watching is also really important. There's the kind of there's always some kind of observation over the the the, the unnamed woman. Um, so even when she goes to the the house to retreat, as soon as she get there, there's a letter. Mm. It's it's almost even like that. And I, I think that's the important part about those letters is not what they say, but like as a physical artifact. So when mm -hmm. you see at the desk at the beginning, they're all piling up. They're always falling over. And it kind of taps into this theme of falling that goes through it, which is actually yeah. quite rhythmical. You know, it happens at the beginning after a lecture. She, she falls and then she falls again and then she keeps falling. Yeah, quite an interesting yeah, sequence of, of movements. Yeah. Um, so you have the falling. You have the the idea of the crowd. You have the idea of like the um, the movement of bodies. I think was really um, really 
overt throughout the film. Um, but then also the, the camera work captured that. Particularly at the beginning, you had these kind of quite meditative sequences of slow panning shots. And then that that kind of that merged into the scene where she's sitting at the desk. Yeah. It seemed like the camera was going round the desk in a circle. And wherever Melina wasn't, the camera the camera was. It was like continuing his movements. Almost, yeah, like a kind of clockwork instrument. Yeah. And whenever it went back to the desk, that seemed to be a motif of it, that it would be this kind of, as you said, like the panopticon-type observations. I think it's interesting you said falling as a theme because the film does begin with a with a, a fall. It begins with a dream, very stylized dream sequence um, of a young girl being thrown from a rooftop by a, a figure who we kind of later configure, we kind of later realise is um, kind of uh, her father, the unnamed woman's father, or a kind of whether that's her specific father or a kind of generalised patriarchal capital F father. Um, and, uh, and she's wearing a red dress, this girl, and we see in similarly kind of uh, Churrascaro-style um, dream sequences her wearing this red dress as an adult. So it, I guess the implication is that um, this this girl is her. Um, and obviously there's, there's this kind of allusion to like an unspeakable, unspoken trauma somewhere in her past, which is perhaps the root or part of the root for her current adult disintegration. Now, I think... The obvious thing to reach for here is um, something we kind of looked at with Michael Haneke and we've looked at with other films, but is, is Nazi, it's World War II and National Socialism. Um, and that's invoked specifically in one scene where the father removes his, his priest's robes <laughs> while he's eating some soup and underneath he's wearing a literal Nazi officer's uniform. Um, Matthew, what, what do you think? How, how much should we see this film as a kind of... Uh, a an analogy for post-war Austria trying to um, uh, negotiate its past and kind of confront its past and be okay with its past. Well, if we if we start off with the the novel as um, a jumping off point, I think that's where it's the sense of fragmentation comes from. Also, this sense of like uh, falling and things being built up again out of out of the rubble of different things going on. You know, it's. The whole book, and I, I think the the film does that as well. There's constant references to dust and stuff like that, and it's almost like Austria carving its way forward through the dust of what happened in those events. Yeah, um, and I, I think you, yeah, uh, Bachman was was uh, one of her like key themes was this modulation between private trauma and a collective one. So you know, you talk about epigenetic traumas um and i think that's what's so poignant about the character in the film is that you get a sense that it's not her personal trauma but it's all these things that she's dealing with and it's kind of a weight that builds up fire plays a really key role in this film and slowly her house um incredible with incredible style and kind of some fucking as my kind of producer's brain was um buzzing heavily during this because the flat is constantly on fire um and and you know it's constantly fights disintegrating a crack appears in the wall which turns out to be very important later it's, everything is disintegrating i mean ralph how did you find this kind of fiery combustion of the house and you know what was that kind of like telling us about um this 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 mental integra- disintegration of the character yeah, it was really bold to go for the fire for the whole of like the last half an hour of the film. And I thought, I think that's like a kind of 
obviously like to be very basic and like youtube video essay about it like having something elemental in the background of shots is very dynamic and compelling etc etc you know like sam like um you know kiriko asara always has like some either some water some rain or some fire somewhere in the shot um but yeah the fire and then like when she's in the fucking chef bath and she like falls out of the bath and puts the shower head all over her body like it's really um that 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 that's the relentlessness of it it's a bit like i'm trying to think about films that have that sort of falling apart nature because it's really lucid it's like a lucid dream mm. it's it's like but it's also it it's, is, it's something yeah, about yeah. the rhythm it's like watching this film is like percussion or something it's it's like pina bausch but like directed by raul ruiz it has this slipping in and out of reality <laughs> but it also has the relentless like hammering of like of like man and woman like not being able to like understand each other so here's his metier was opera but Schroeter did but Schroeter yeah that's so he, entirely unsurprising <laughs> highly unsurprising here's a lot of the films he's shot are straight kind of filmic adaptation or representations of opera um, a good three quarters of his stuff output is that this is one of his more normal as it were films um, so it borrows heavily from the staging of opera um, there is literally a character at one point an opera singer walking around this kind of strange um party where everyone is kind of still almost or or kind of expressionless um so there's lots of this like bubbling forth of extreme drama and extreme kind of pathos um and it does that very well that's what i mean it's this the the fire this disintegration it does yeah it's a really elemental way of representing like i suppose in part yeah her her decay but i think also just the elemental nature of it is like this stuff is vital this is something the things she's tussling with aren't just like a you know you had a bad experience when you were a kid this is something bigger at stake here which is her subjectivity her sense of self yeah it's interesting that you mentioned the operatic nature of it because it is like there's there's a rhythm to it like we mentioned about the different falls and whenever she falls it's kind of in the same way so it kind of marks that moment and i think there's there's like a so there's a set of falls but then there's also a set of um of transformations of the same thing so to start with, you've got the crowd and that changes then into letters or, and there's always this sense of like something that's really claustrophobic that's around that character. Yeah, And I yeah, think yeah. the fire is kind of a transformation of what the crowd is at the beginning. But you would say that a crowd is kind of a less malign presence maybe. Um, and then the dynamics of that crowd just turn into a fire at the end. That's a really good point actually. I think, yeah, that's that's kind of a good representation because these, these things throng around her and at first, like things you say, you can't it's control. things you can't control. First, are happening outside in these lecture halls in the street. Um, yeah, then we transfer into the apartment, and the world shrinks. Her world kind of reduces. And I think the very key scene is very close towards the end, and during this, this breakdown or this breaking out, is a scene where she rests her face against a mirror, and then the camera pans in such a way that it reveals two selves. And as she walks away, that self is fractured into multiple reflections and that's it so it's this kind of like the breaking of the mirror at the center there's these things have kind of almost come to this event horizon this singularity and have kind of destroyed her but that's the key there for me because like um like matthew i mean do you feel this this destruction at the end it could be read as suicide it could also be represented as an escape you know a less kind of um a less mortal kind of escape what do you think what is happening to her at the end of this film when yeah, she disappears. I this, um, 
So what does what is she doing at the end of the film? Um, I, I think constantly throughout the film, there's not one linear meaning to anything. Mm. There's always like a, a polyvocity of different outcomes to, and conclusions to whatever you're watching. And I, I think that the, that final scene, um, you mentioned one of them, um, that there's the fragmentation of self. There's also the idea that she gets, um, she kind of crosses this kind of the liminal threshold. Um, and then afterwards you get, even though she's disappeared, there's one more line where she said it was murder. And yes. you're not sure whether that is, is that collective murder? Is that from Melina? Because then he goes on to claim that nobody lived there. A woman has never lived there. Mm. Um, so that's another possible one. Um, another potential that there's something quite ghost-like about that character. Yeah. Um, maybe there's that. Maybe that's why she gets subsumed into something and you're not sure what it is. Um, but I thought particularly, I remember uh, making a note of it kind of filmically, I thought it was interesting that, yeah, you've got the mirror there, but actually the, the threshold she crosses, there's not a physical threshold, but she goes off the edge of the frame, mm. goes out of picture, and that's the one that she, um, that's the only threshold that she actually crosses. Um, yeah. And, and that's an interesting idea in itself, you know, does she become the eye that's looking onto those scenes then? This isn't a spoiler alert, I guess, but at the end of Melina, the novel, she, you know, when you see the crack in the wall, mm. she essentially becomes, um, she kind of diffuses into that crack. And you're not sure whether whether she has committed suicide, whether she's jumped out the window or Melina's um, did some kind of, of crime against her. Um, but kind of, I, I think that she... Um, I don't know, almost become stronger by doing that. She's like yeah, trying like a re reintegration. Yeah. She's you know, become you could... subsumed into the the environment that's around her and has somehow become a stronger Yeah, like a foundation almost, you could say. Because in a way Melina represents both Ivan and Melina represent kind of integrated members of, of bourgeois society and she does at the beginning in as a lecturer and writer or whatever. Um Melina is it's he's such an interesting character because he's he's played with real sang froid, isn't he? He's like he's 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 excellently cold but not evil. He's I think we, he has a different slightly it implies a slightly different job that he has in the book, but I think in the film he it implies that he's the curator of a military museum because we often see him in this environment of weapons, which is such a like on the nose um, uh, uh, kind of embodiment of what he is, like this the state, I guess, patriarchal power, violence, um, kind of con contained, and yeah, a military museum is nothing but a contained, I guess, neutered army, isn't it? There's a, I've just got a little quote here from uh, Three Steps on the Ladder of Writing, which is a, um, a really amazing series of lectures by Helen Suzu where she talks about kind of writers who she sees as descenders, writers who kind of plumb the depths of, of, of life. Uh, and Bachman is one of the writers along with uh, Kafka, Genet, Lespector, um, Clarice Lespector, and um, Svet, um, Svetseva, the, the Russian Marina Svetseva, yeah. Yeah, uh, but there's a quote here. There's various things to do with um, Bachman's relationship to, to the world she was in. Um, but Sezu says, um, I'm not at the point where I, I could rightly call the relationship uh, between men and women fascist. It was true for her, Bachman. 
the relationship between men and women of her time in Austria was dressed and presented in the suit of fascism. It's only at, at the end. All of, all of Ingeborg Bachmann's books are books about the end. She writes each time in agony that everything we weren't able to say will be said. Not only is there a war between people, but this war is produced by sexual difference. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah, um, and I, I, I guess I just got this fireworks outside, sorry. Um, also, I'm in a very echoey room because I've like put all my stuff under my bed to paint my floors, which is still <laughs> Is wet. there a crack in a wall? Yeah, um, it's, this is the end <laughs> for me, basically. I am Melina. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I guess sh I wanted to shout out to Elfrida Jelinek, who is an author who I have read and I'm quite mm. fond of when I'm in the mood. Um, and there's a relentlessness to Jelinek. And I wondered, for both of you who are familiar with with the book um, is Jelinek's spirit a kind of um, in terms of translating this to the screen is she making it Jelinek-y uh, or is it very is it already quite Jelinek-y and Jelinek was just like the ideal fit I think so I I really enjoy the piano teacher the the, the novel version of it, not the one that's more famous now, I think. Um, but there are there are parallels between those two novels. Uh, you have the these kind of all-seeing presences. You have a sense of claustrophobia. Um, there's one, one of my favourite bits in the, the, the novel version of The um, Piano Teacher is where she um, talks about the presence of her mother, which is kind of like a psycho situation where... Um, the mother's kind of domineering over the daughter. Um, she talks about her being like a, a, a cast around a, her whole body, mm -hmm. a bit like a Rachel White Reed type sculptural situation. Um, and that kept uh, that yeah that kept going back to me while I was watching watching this today. Yeah, I think for me it, it wasn't Yelnik. Yelnik, uh, it was more here. Um, I felt like it was channeling, and I think hard to hard to ignore the presence of um, Thomas Bernard. Mm. Um, to ignore the presence of Thomas Bernard in in this book, uh, in this film, and in the book, I suppose to an extent, because Who yeah, because there he was. Um, Bachman was one of his mentors as well, but right. that isn't spoken about very much either. No. Oh wow. Well, there we go. I think there's there's this this tendency because Bernard was obsessed with suicide. Um, he. Uh, was obsessed with the idea of the end and of ending things. He was obsessed with the kind of uh, the plummeting kind of circulatory descent of language into itself and the kind of language consuming itself. And I think there's a really interesting set of kind of parallels between in this like post-war Austrian mentality, um, which was uh, managed to kind of like cross the streams of, of I guess, like French existentialism and uh, and this kind of more, as it were, hardy germanic and like this kind of more germanic kind of uh despair almost it feels like there's an interesting kind of coolness and hotness to it which i found really interesting and bernhard obviously like if you take correction you know for example in in that novel the the character leads himself almost by necessity to his own suicide after completing his completing his work he 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 you know he completes this kind of structure in a forest and then kills himself um the I believe as well that Bernard came from a family of suicides. The character in this novel came from a family of suicides. There's, suicide kind of pervades so much of this. My reading of this book, um, which I guess why it's kind of difficult to ignore um, that that reading of the ending. Um, 
but I don't, yeah, I don't want to be kind of like tied down by that because I think, like you said, Matthew, there's definitely like a something more interesting. There's like a yeah, a kind of uh, diffuseness. There's there's a multivocality of readings at the end of this, which makes it not necessarily a really cynical film, um, because it has got that lightness to it. it. It it feels despairing, but kind of there's a there's a there's a weird humor to how Schroeder has done this. Yeah, it's kind of slapstick sometimes. Yeah, and I guess the operatic nature of it is a little bit kitsch in some respects. Yeah. Yeah. The way it edges with fire, I think, is really interesting. The way characters kind of meander through the flames, it's kind of really uncomfortable to watch. Or but like kind of throw it's... fire at each other. Like there's that bit where mm. like, the guy just like, <laughs> like punches her and then throws some fire at her. Like, bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to talk about something just came to me. Um, I, I was thinking about the, this idea of suicide and wondering whether something else is going on. Um, and I was just thinking about if you've read um, Flann O'Brien's The Third Policeman, there's a whole section in there where he talks about, so the narrator has, um, has been in Dublin his whole life, and he talks about how his, his DNA has swapped with the city gradually over a certain time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think instead of suicide at the end of the film, I think she gets her DNA is swapped with all these situations that are around her. I think very much so that she becomes subsumed into that, into the claustrophobic environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what puts her in a, a position of power. You know, it's not, a, um, you wouldn't aspire to that kind of outcome. Um, but it's, it's almost like that is the only option is to be yeah. as bad as the things are around her. Yeah, to to become normalized because it's. I mean, in a way, that's a, a positive reading in the sense of she she can gain this power and this sense of self. But at the same time, it requires that you almost have to debase yourself into the kind of collective insanity. Um, and I think, yeah, I I like that as a compelling reading. If as a good parallel to this, I think Andrei Andrei Zalowski. Um, what all of his what, films. Oh, yeah, all 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 that Andrew's. I mean, basically, films. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's got such a similar kind of dramatized intensity. Um, you know, uh, love the most important thing, or mm. the importance of love. That film from the seventy seventy five, whatever, um, has a real similar kind of hyper intense uh, hysterical energy to it. I think the the final thought there would be relating back to the the quote Ralph read out is that Backman was. I think her kind of underlying concern was to do with fascism and how fascism doesn't start as a kind of widespread uh, dominant. It doesn't start at the top, essentially. But fascism mm. starts with human relationships, so between two different people. And that's what paves the way for it. And I think that's very relevant now is that, you know, the, the fight for, for like some kind of freedom or to uh, counteract some kind of wider force is not between you and a governmental system or political system, but it's just between the individuals around you. And I, I think that's what mm. the film does. Uh, it shows that, you know, yeah. these, these, these things start at home. Thank you, Matthew. Um, no, that was, this was really enjoyable, thanks. Yeah, no, I really, really enjoyed that. You've now made me want to go and um, pick up Ingmar Bachman again, um, which is no bad thing. Great. Well, we be, we'll be back again next week, um, <laughs> and we don't know what we're going to review next, do we? But um, 